0: Our text this morning is from Joel 2, verses 18, 24 through 27. You can find this on page 761 in the Bibles, placed on the chairs in front of you. It's down in the bottom corner. (laughs) Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Erica, you may be seated. I want to start this morning uh, with an apology? Last week during my sermon, I confused Gomer Pyle for Barney Fife. I know. I just wanted you all to know that uh, mixing up sitcom characters is not who I am. It's not who I was raised to be, and I promise to do the work to undo this. Okay? Uh, Enough nonsense. I did do that though, and I felt stupid. So anyway, apology. Hopefully you weren't offended because that's ridiculous. (laughs) Now, that's an apology. Um, (laughs) Okay. Um, We are talking about Joel this morning. Talking with someone last night. Maybe it's Joel. We're going with Joel. Uh, Just to kind of recap where we're at, give you a time period of where Joel is ministering. We talked last week about Hosea. Uh, Hosea was ministering to the northern kingdom in Israel. And in 722, there will be no quiz Assyria came in and brutally conquested that nation. They were gone, all right? So uh, then there was the southern kingdom, Judah, and they hung on for a little longer. They they were around until about 586, uh, and as a punishment, just like Israel for breaching the covenant that God had made with them, uh, Babylon came in and exiled the Judeans. Now, about 70 years after that, the king of Babylon... Um, by the power of God, uh, recognized that it would be a good idea to send Israel back. And so you can read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah, but the Israelites went back. They rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. And so uh, this is all important because Joel, uh, by most of the evidence in the book, is probably a priest in that temple, the rebuilt temple after Babylon had come in, destroyed it, and then sent the Israelites back. And so um, Joel here is ministering in that time after the return from exile from Babylon. So uh, Joel is interesting because there's no specific sins declared in this book. The closest we get has to do with the motivations of the hearts of the people in this land. And so you look at Joel 2.13 and he says this, Rend your hearts, not your garments. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Do you see he doesn't want religious ceremony. He wants the Israelites that have returned from exile to, to be motivated to love God and serve Him. Um, we talked last week about several characteristics of, uh, of, of the prophets. And so here, what's causing Joel to have this outcry to the, the newly returned Israelites? Uh, what are the, what's the cosmic consequences that he has seen that's causing him to see some sin in their nation. Well, uh, just after they had finished rebuilding everything, uh, locusts, I'm not sure exactly how many, but a, a plague of locusts had come to, to Israel and uh, had decimated everything edible. So, to give you some idea. I looked up some facts about locusts here to give us an idea. It's not like the cicadas that are kind of uh, not here, thank, thankfully, but other places in our country, it's much, much worse. Um, One swarm of locusts can contain up to 10 billion individual locusts, 10 billion. Uh, And it gets worse from there. A thousand locusts occupy about a square foot. This is about a square foot. So a thousand locusts in that area. A single locust can travel up to 3,000 miles in its lifetime. Now, this is really the deal breaker. A swarm of locusts can devour in one day what 40,000 people can eat in one year, okay? Okay. So imagine, these locusts have come to Israel and they have eaten everything. And so you see in Joel, there is no grain. There is no oil. There is no wine. It's really a bad situation. The locusts have come and decimated everything. So Joel, the priest in the temple, is looking around and he sees what has happened to the locusts and he sees the syncretism probably of of the Israelites who have brought back in these fertility cults into their worship. He sees their non-urgency of kind of living this lackadaisical life that they have now been given back by God. And he says, see what God has done. Repent before another human army comes to destroy us like the locusts have. So, Joel sees this as more of a way out of what they're doing as as opposed to a warning. He's giving a hopeful kind of, uh, uh, "Hey, here's what's going on. We've got the locust, but it could be worse than that. We've experienced worse than that. So let's come back in our hearts to God as his call to Israel. Um, If you take Joel's unique time frame where it's after uh, the resettlement of Israel, you look at God's response, which we will today, of pity rather than wrath, uh, and you look at, of course, this famous pouring out passage from Joel, that God's promise for the future, you can look at Joel almost as if it's kind of Old Testament 1.5. Okay? It's not looking forward to some doom because, because they won't come back to God. They've already experienced the exile. They've already experienced the punishment of their, their uh, abandonment of the covenant. And so, what it's doing in Joel is kind of shining a light a little bit on God's plan, what's coming next. And this is where it connects to us. This is where it connects to us in Joel. You see, the Israelite story and our story, they're not mutually exclusive, they're not separate. In fact, the Israelites are like the beginning of our story, and our story is the continuation of their story, and and all of our story together is what? The story of God saving for Himself a people. And so as we read Joel this morning, we can learn some lessons for ourselves from it. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the text. Father in heaven, I pray that we would recognize this morning your spirit is here, and may that spirit be active, active in my mouth and my heart. May my my heart be rendered and not my my clothing. May I uh, be motivated to share your gospel this morning, and may we all be motivated to hear the things that you want us to hear, hard or easy, encouraging, challenging. May we be in it. May we listen to the, the words of your spirit from your scripture. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so we're going to be looking at verses 18 and skipping now to 24 through 27. But first, there's this lesson I think we need to kind of cover that comes from the whole book of Joel that is relevant for us. And that is this when we choose sin, when we choose sin, we lose every time. When we choose sin, we lose every time. And, and in fact, two uh, versions of this for the Israelites are on display in Joel. First, there's a reminder of what happened with, when the sin of the kings and the people before Babylon. So what happened? They abandoned the covenant. They worshiped other gods, all this idolatry and, and other sins. They said, God, no thank you. And what happened? God brought Babylon crashing down on their heads. They were exiled. The temple was robbed and destroyed. The people were ripped from their homes. The nation was disgraced and shamed. So, Think about it this way. The Israelites had the covenant with God where God said, if you obey, there will be blessings. And if you don't, there will be curses. And they said, I think we'll go with the curse one. We'll try that out. I think we can make it work. And it didn't. It didn't work. And then we have here the, the, the resettled Israelites. And one author puts it this way. They're, it's a cult gone wrong. So think of it this way. Uh, we say that we're, very, we're fairly sure that this was a fertility cult issue because in the text, Joel calls out farmers specifically and the priest in the temple uh, for their sin generically. Um, and what that probably means is that after the wall is built, after the temple has been reestablished, they're trying to grow food and have plenty for themselves. And so what happens? What they've always done. <laughs> they go back to the fertility cults. They say, we're going to go to Baal for rain and bail for, for or the, the, plenti, the plentiful harvest that we desire. And so in a sense, a cult gone wrong means they went to the cult for plenty, and what did they get out of the cult? Complete and barren destruction of everything. And so the cult gone wrong, the result wasn't plenty. Everything they were trying to gain and enhance was taken away because they abandoned God. And so we see them choosing sin and losing to sin. And so I want to connect that to us. Our sin does the same thing, church. Our sin does the same thing. In a sense, our sin is also a cult gone wrong. It seems strongly worded, but if you think about it, it's syncretism. We're saying in our lives, if we are followers of Christ, when we choose sin, we're saying, you know what I need in my life? I need Jesus plus something else. I need Jesus plus this other thing that I think will really get me what I want. That's exactly what the Israelites were doing. I need God, sure, but we need God plus this other thing to really get what I want. And what does sin do? Sin robs us. It robs us of joy. It robs us of relationships. There's consequences to sin. As we look at the, uh, the confession of sin from Psalm 32, what does secret sin do? It makes us waste away. What does ongoing sin do? It steals life from us. We lose every time. And so sin is like locust. It gobbles up everything good in our life. Let me give you some examples. Unchecked or unsubmitted anger. What does that turn into? It turns into hatred. And when hatred lingers in our hearts, what does it do? It turns to bitterness. And what does bitterness do? It consumes us, doesn't it? Think about lust. Lust causes us to obsess on things of this earth, not things of heaven. What is covetous new? It causes us to pursue things in a thirst for it, thinking it'll quench, but it doesn't. It never will. Self-righteousness, what does it do? It blinds us to our own hurtful actions towards others. That's what it does. That's what it does primarily, I think. And pride, what does that do? It causes us to forget how much we need Jesus. That's what pride does. Well, I have what I need. I am, I'm sufficient in and of myself. No, we need Jesus. Greed, what does it cause us to do? It causes us to chase after that which moth and rust destroys, as the Scriptures put it. And so this, in our lives, this demand for happiness, this demand for control, what does it do? It leads us to a false gospel, and it sets us in a tailspin when we don't get what we want. Sin destroys everything good. We lose every time. Well, ransom, my, my life isn't destroyed by sin? I'm fairly happy. Well, here's the reality. When we are born... Imagine this kind of imagery. When we are born, we're born into the locust-swept wasteland of our life. Sin has robbed us of our humanity. Whether we think our choices or not are causing us to lose, we're born into a place with no life, no resources without Jesus Christ. So at the very least, we have to deal with this idea that sin is a wasteland. And it has nothing for us. And sin, as we choose sin, Christian, it's like wishing we were back in the wasteland. (laughs) Doesn't that seem ludicrous to us? It's like, man, I wish I could just make it on my own and do it my own way. I don't need God. That's what sin is. When we choose sin, that's what it is. And so sin is this obstacle and, and what we have to do and, and why we're starting here is the context of Joel 2, 18 and then 24 through 27 is God's reaction to Israel's sin and in, and in a very close and intimate way, it's his reaction to ours. So let's go there now. Let's look at God's reaction to this reality of sin, of sin. Excuse me. Verse 18, Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and had pity on his people. This word pity means compassion. It's good to just note this is not jeal- jealousy of his land. It's jealousy for his land. What is jealousy? As he has jealousy for his people, he demands this rightful, singular fidelity. He wants this relationship of one-on-one with his people. He doesn't want them to, to look other ways and other places for relationship. But what, what do we really want to focus in here on, on On Joel 2.18, the fact that God acts first. God moves first. Joel 17 does not have the Israelites saying, we're so sorry. It doesn't happen that way. Before they repent, God determines in His heart to redeem His people. Before they repent, before they turn from their wicked ways, God determines in His heart to restore them. Restore them. So those of us who have been affected by the swarm of destroying sin, either because we've been born into it or, like all of us, we participate in it every day, here's the truth we need to hear from this passage this morning. We are restored, church, only through God's provision and His protection. We are restored from the wasteland of sin only through God's provision and protection. And we're going to look at that. And verses 24 through 27. So let's go right there. What is his provision? Look at verses 24 and 25. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. So what? In his pity does God declare he will do. He will restore what has been destroyed or lost to his people. So here we have in Joel 2, if you take Joel at what he's saying to these people in this time, it's a physical restoration. It's a physical restoration. In the Old Testament, physical presence of God when he was in the camp, that was the ultimate blessing. And so when God is present and things are going well, what will they have? Grain, wine, oil, all those things overflowing. It's a physical symbol of what God is doing. But because it's the Old Testament, what do they have to do to get it? They had to repent. They had to repent. And so this is this physical comfort after physical punishment um, is, is all throughout the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah 41 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, Lord's hand double for all her sins. So you have this physical punishment for the sins of the people. And then what happens after they repent? This physical comfort, this physical provision. God restores the land and all those goods to them. But as we look at this not living in the time of Joel, something's changed for us. So in the Old Testament, again, you have this physical restoration, and it points to something different in the New Testament. We have a spiritual restoration. And so because, if you think about it this way, we were born into this desolate land of sin, no resources, no life. Our provision that we need, the comfort that we need, is not physical crops. It's not what we need. We need something more significant than that. We have to overcome the problem of sin and it must be dealt with. And so what is our provision, church? What is our provision? Our provision is that another, another person has been punished in our place. Another person has been punished in our place and not just that, he died on the cross and not just that, but praise the Lord, he rose again from the grave. That's our provision. That's our provision. Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and His coming back from the grave, we have real healing available to us. In fact, it's assured to us. The real thing we need, not crops or money or whatever or wine or oil, we need uh, something to deal with our sin, and Jesus Christ is that provision. I don't usually like to read long quotes, but when you find a good one, you really can't Take it for yourself. So Charles Spurgeon says this. He's preaching on this passage, and and I'll read it deliberately so you can catch what he has to say. Speaking of the loss of sin in our lives, you cannot have your time back your time. But there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back to you the wasted blessings, the unripened fruits of years over which you mourned. It is a pity that they should have been locust-eaten by our own doing, but if they have been so, be not hopelessly concerning hopeless concerning them. A rhetorical question. Who can make the all-devouring locust restore his prey? No one, by wisdom or power, can recover what has been utterly destroyed. God alone can do for you what seems impossible. And there is promise. There is the promise of this grace. I will repay you for the years the swarming locust. It is a great wonder, but Jehovah is a God of wonders. What is our provision? What's our ultimate provision? It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our ultimate provision. He paid for our sins. His, His righteous life that he lived and the righteousness he earned from that, he gives to us, he imputes it to us through his death and resurrection. He defeated death, the devil, and sin, And so starvation is not our greatest peril. What's our greatest peril? Being lost to Christ. That's the greatest danger in this world. And what's the payoff for this provision? We go to Revelation for that. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And listen to this comfort. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the provision that is assured to those who look to Christ and His cross and His resurrection for salvation. Church, God provides freedom from the eternal consequences of our sins. He provided it in love. He provides it for free. Our exile was poured out on Him. Our famine that we deserved to undergo was poured out on Him. And what happens after that? It's simply ours if we repent by faith and say, I can't save myself. Jesus, you're the only way. You're the only way. What other provision do we need, church? We, we don't need any other. And so, In fact, we struggle believing this, and we, we fall back into this idea of syncretism, Jesus plus something else. Why? Because we live in such a consumer culture. Nom, nom, nom. I need more, 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 more. And so Jesus clearly isn't enough. We sang it this morning. Uh, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Do we believe it? Here's the fact. Here's a fact. If we find ourselves in a place where everything in our life is wiped away and we have simply Jesus, we have enough. We have enough. And if we find ourselves in a place where we don't believe that, the answer isn't on, the problem isn't on Jesus' end. The problem's on our end. We're disbelieving. And so what, what's the answer to this error? When all of us, myself included, tomorrow say, Jesus isn't enough. What's the answer? The answer is to behold the love of God for you and His total provision for your soul in Jesus Christ. Just behold it. Look at it. Understand it. Believe it. He's provided. So that's His provision for us. That's our full threshing floors. That's our full vats. Jesus Christ on the cross and raised from the dead. And so that's his provision. What else does he provide for us? He provides protection. Look at verses 26 and 27. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. I was reading this week, and I love this. The author declared, the Lord himself is a refuge for his people as the cosmos crumbles. Isn't that gorgeous? As the cosmos crumbles, what is our one refuge? God himself. And so let's talk about the Israelites. This is talking about physical protection. He's talking about real physical shame. So when when you are conquested by another country, the countries around you are like, well, shame, shame. what's wrong with them, right? so God is saying, if you would repent, Israel, if you would repent, I will not bring that kind of disgrace upon you again. But here's a spoiler alert. Joel is not the final prophet. He was not meant to be. By the time Jesus comes to earth, who's in charge of Israel? Rome. So conquest happens again. And so, listen, in the Old Testament, physical protection was always temporary. Always temporary. Why? Because the the physical protection was dependent upon the people who were called to follow the covenant. They were their own representatives. They had no one facing God for them. From, From Mount Sinai forward, God said, here's how I want you to live. And they said, we'll do it. There was no buffer. There was no representative. And so their behavior begat the curses or the promises of the covenant. And so, for there to be this permanent physical protection, a new representative had to be found. Something different had to be done because the people always failed. So, where does this promised protection arrive permanently? That's a lot of P's. Um, there's a two kind of phased approach to think about where our protection comes from. First of all, it comes from the ascension of Christ. And secondly, it comes from, from Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is given. Let me explain. Church, listen, we have a new covenant representative. We have a new representative. We're not standing before God on our own merits. Praise the Lord. We're not standing there based on our failures or our successes. No, we have one who never fails, never falters, is always faithful, and his name is Jesus. And so that's why the ascension is so important for us. Why? Because as Christ went up, he didn't come up just to get a vacation. He's doing something for us. Look at 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But listen to this truth. This is incredible. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What does that mean? That means when Jesus ascended, He now stands before the Father. And if you are in Christ and you sin, He says this, He's with me. She's with me. And in Christ, God looks at us as if we're Christ. Why? Because He is our representative. You see the power in this truth? See the power in this truth? God delights. God delights in calling us not guilty on behalf of Jesus Christ. He delights in it. This advocacy is offered to us, and it's beautiful, but it's beautiful because of the cost. What did it cost Christ to be that advocate? His body, his blood. He was broken. He was abandoned by God, and then picked up again in perfect relationship. Our advocate gave everything in love for us, like some bad infomercial, but that's not all, right? It's not the end of it. Pentecost came. So, Jesus ascends. You can read all about this in the first couple chapters of Acts. Jesus ascends, and before he goes, he said, I'm sending someone to you. I'm sending someone to you. And that someone was the Holy Spirit. If you fast forward in the chapter, you get to Joel 2, 28 through 29. This is the famous uh, passage, probably the most recognized passage from Joel. And it says this, speaking of the future, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Church, this is true about us. This has already happened for us. And so when we read verse 27 you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. Guess what? God is in our midst already. He's in us. He's with us. And if that's not incredible enough, the same Spirit that hovered over the unformed earth The same spirit that that caused Joel and his prophetic counterparts to see what God sees and commune with God in this way. The same spirit that descended like a dove upon Christ at his baptism. The same spirit that came like a tongue of fire upon the apostles is the spirit that lives in you and me when we're in Christ. The same one. So we're not simply guilty people called not guilty. God declares us not guilty on behalf of Christ. And then He goes further in sending the Spirit to make us more like Christ. To make us like that thing He declares us to be. So in other words, we have this spiritual, direct spiritual communion with God. And as Calvin puts it, not because we are worthy, but because God designed to come to us. That's why. And so as we behold the love of God and His total provision through the the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, we can also behold His protection by ascending before us to heaven, advocating for us before God, and then sending His Holy Spirit to carry us all the way to glory, to be with Him. And so this restorative love that we see of God in Joel is not one for us that's primarily meant to send food or to fill our bank accounts or to give us vats of Wine and oil. No, it's meant to meet a much, much, much deeper need. A much deeper need. It's meant for the restoration at an essential part of our souls. So we can learn from Joel that God acts before we do, even when we sin. He acts before we do. He provides relief from our sin and He protects our souls until eternity. And so let's take a moment here at the Lord's Supper and behold, Together, the love of God for sinners. We come again to the table. And what we have here, we have the broken bread, the broken body of Christ. We have the wine and the juice, symbolizing the shed blood, the painful sacrifice of our Savior to save a filthy sinner like me. That's what He did. He came to save me, not because I'm worthy, but because that's what He designed to do. And so we come to this table, not because we're worthy, because it's what He designed us to do, to come to Him, to behold His love for us as sinners. And so this morning, what causes us, what makes us worthy to come? A few things. First of all, we have to admit we are syncretists. It's a big word meaning we think that our life is run and is better with Jesus plus whatever else you fill in the blank. And we recognize we do that daily. And we are wrong in doing that. We also recognize that Jesus came while we were still sinners, that God acted first and sent salvation before we earned it. It's not about how good we were, how handsome or beautiful we are, how, how much money we have in retirement. It's about God seeing our need and acting out of jealousy for our relationship and pity, compassion on His people. So you recognize that and you come to Jesus alone for His provision and His protection And so this morning, you come and you eat this means of grace because you've been baptized, because you're part of God's church, because you've declared publicly, I believe in Jesus. I cannot save myself. And you come marked worthy because of our advocate, Jesus Christ. If you do not believe these things, or if you have a sin in your life and you're saying, no, Jesus plus, even in fact, let's get rid of Jesus, I'll just keep the plus." If that's what's going on in your heart and in your life this morning, the Bible makes it clear it's not wise for you to come and eat. It's not wise. It's a bad decision. There's consequences for that. And so I would echo that same thing from Scripture. If those are your scenario, don't come and eat. So this morning, let's take a few moments just to evaluate where we're at in our hearts. I'll gather us back together for a prayer of blessing. I'll invite the elders forward and we'll distribute the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, we recognize that nothing magical is happening this morning. Nothing is turning into something else, uh, like some kind of trick. But we do recognize, Lord, that you promise in supernatural ways to redeem our humanity. And by redeem our humanity, we mean that you created us for relationship with you that we would enjoy you, but also that you would enjoy us, and that was all turned aside by sin. And so, you have made a way to meet our ultimate need to deal with that sin by Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, a miracle, a miracle that redeems our humanity, that makes us more like you designed us to be. And beyond that, you sent your Spirit after Christ died and was resurrected and ascended, you sent your Spirit to guide us to comfort us, to lead us towards Christ. And so this morning, we recognize the power of the Spirit that causes Christ to be here with us by by His power. Christ is with us because we're gathered. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to participate in this visible sign that means something so much deeper and spiritual, the nourishment of our very souls. So bless this bread, bless this juice and wine, bless this time as we turn to you for our utmost needs. We pray this in the name of Jesus.